I'm turning to Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians 1.4, um, in large measure for the encouragement of our congregation, and frankly, for my own encouragement. And I believe if I'm encouraged by it, you will be too. Let's briefly pray, and we will read the first 14 verses of Ephesians 1. Gracious God, as we now turn to your most holy, inerrant word, we are grateful that you have given to us in time and space and in history this word that comes from your hand through human authors, and yet it is your word. And we know that it is altogether trustworthy. We ask that you will edify your people with the truth of your sovereignty, and we pray that those who may be among us who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ will be drawn by the sovereign work of your Holy Spirit to the Savior, that they may be enabled to entrust their hearts and souls to Christ alone, who is the Savior of sinners, for there is no other. And we ask that you will give to us great joy in worship. What a privilege it is uh, to turn our hearts toward the triune God and to acknowledge you to be the Lord that you are. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, we will begin with verse 1 and read the first 14 verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to the purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Looking again at verse 4, "...even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world," that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, there are times in a minister's ministry or in the life of a church when we minister together, there are times when everything will seem to be against us. There is the radical depravity of human nature that is against us. There is the rebellion of our society against God's Word that is so widespread There can be the carelessness of the church in doctrine and in life, 
And then there is our own struggle with temptation and sin. All of these things seem to be against us in ministry. In the midst of all of this, what is our great encouragement? The great encouragement is that King Jesus will succeed in the purpose for which he came and will save his people for time and for eternity. Despite all of these things that seem to be against us, our God is sovereign, our Christ rules and reigns, and he has promised that his rule is indefectible. The greatest encouragement with which I encourage you to swim is found in this text. It is the truth of God's electing sovereign grace. And to swim in this doctrine is to immerse ourselves in the love of God. The text stresses the love of God, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. To say election or to say predestination is to say the love of God. We do not shrink back from this great truth of electing grace, for if you do, you're shrinking back from the truth of God's special love for his people. Revel in it. Rejoice in it. Take your encouragement from it. In Ephesians 1, election is the first of the blessings that we have in Christ. In verse 3, he begins to enumerate the blessings that we have in Christ. And as he enumerates them, the very first is election in Christ. And he speaks of love because love is the key to persistence in ministry. Knowing that we are loved and loving in return. In the midst of all of the problems that we face, knowing that God has loved us with an everlasting love is the key to our persistence in ministry, no matter how difficult it may be. Now let's turn to the source of praise, this fount of wonder, electing grace, as found particularly in verse 4. First, to understand what it teaches and then to apply the text to ministry in our congregation. And the first thing that I want to say from the text about this great theme of election is that election is God's decree. God's decree, according as He has chosen us in Him from before the foundation of the world. God works on a plan. And as you look at this wonderful first chapter of Ephesians, you find the stress upon the triune nature of God. God the Father choosing His people in verse 4 and predestining us, predestinating to adoption. Redemption in Christ, verse 7, all the way to the sealing of the Holy Spirit found in verse 14. And so God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit involved in every part of our salvation. God then is the great architect of our redemption. I think it's a very strange thing, always have, at least since I've come to understand these truths, that we find that we need to work on plans, that we think that if we're going to build a house, we need an architect and we have plans, and yet we don't want a God who works on a plan. We want a God who leaves all of that to us, but that's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the great architect of our salvation. And choosing is especially ascribed in verse 4 to the Father. This is found throughout Scripture. Jesus said, All that the Father giveth unto me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. I've told you that little children's poem before. Let me repeat it to you because I think it's really good catechesis. The child was taught about salvation in this way. God the Father thought it, God the Son bought it, God the Spirit brought it, the devil fought it, but thank God I got it. 
that really is good catechesis, and it summarizes well what we find in this first chapter of Ephesians. God's decree, His choice, not ours. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. Romans 9, 15, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Verse 11 in this chapter tells us that we have been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That is a profound verse indeed. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, God chose you from the beginning unto salvation. And so the Bible could not be more plain. Salvation is secure, irrevocable, and certain. It does not change. God does not alter his divine decree. I am the Lord, I change not, therefore are you sons of Jacob not consumed, he says in Malachi. And so God is the great architect. It is his decree that is behind our salvation. The next thing I would have you notice from this text about electing grace is that election is God's choice of individuals. It does not mean that God merely foresaw who would believe and who would not believe. No sinner can believe in his own power. As we read on in Ephesians and come to the second chapter, we are told that we are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead men cannot believe. Dead men can do nothing to bring themselves to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul explicitly denies this idea that election is simply God's foreknowing who would believe and who would not. In the ninth chapter of the book of Romans, in which he says, speaking of um, the children that Rebekah had conceived, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, But because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, and Esau have I hated. Election, then, is God's determination to save those chosen in Christ, our text tells us, before the foundation of the world, before creation. Not because of anything in us, not because of any foreseen faith or merit, not because of anything that we had done, but altogether for his own glory. So that when the gospel is preached in the 13th chapter of the book of Acts, Why is it that some believe? We are told in Acts 13, 48, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So the gospel was indiscriminately proclaimed, and those ordained to eternal life believed. God determined their salvation. So we say, a debtor to mercy alone, to covenant mercy, I sing. Why do any believe who believe? Let me ask you. The reason is because God wills it. Here is the power of the gospel. There is the sinner who says, I do not want to believe. And every sinner says that by nature. I hate the God of the Bible. I do not want to believe. God does not sit in heaven wringing his hands. God is not sitting on his throne uh, concerned that maybe he can't make any alteration in this situation. If God has determined that you believe, you will believe. And if God intends to save you, you cannot stop him. The Bible tells us that the God that we serve in Daniel 4 It tells us he does what he wills in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? He's an absolute sovereign over the souls of men and over all things. The next thing we should note about this great truth of election is that election is apart from any foreseen faith or merit. Now, I've mentioned that, but I want to stress it for a moment. It is apart from any foreseen faith or merit. 
The way in which we usually put that is election is unconditional. It is not based upon any conditions. It is unconditional. What could fallen creatures do to redeem or save themselves? But Ephesians 1.4 teaches the unconditionality of election in two ways. First of all, it tells us that we are chosen in Christ. Look at verse 4 again. Even as he chose us in him, that is to say in Christ, in union with Christ, before the foundation of the world. In Christ as our representative because we could not be chosen in ourselves. But the other way in which the unconditional nature of election is stated in this text is that it says we are chosen from before the foundation of the world. Now that means that it's totally unconstrained, that it's unconditional, that it's sheer sovereign grace, that you and I, if I may be blunt, had nothing to do with it whatsoever. This is God's choice, not ours. And so we are told in 2 Timothy 1.19 that God saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so Augustus Toplady teaches us to sing, To thee, O Lord, alone is due all glory and renown. Ought to ourselves we dare not take or rob thee of thy crown. Thou wast our surety in God's redemptive plan. In thee his grace was given us long ere the world began. It is sovereign, unconditional grace based on the sovereign choice of God, not upon anything within our persons. And this is emphasized in the text in other ways. God's will in saving us is stressed in verses 5, 9, and 11. And that our salvation is according to the praise of His glory, we are told three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, another thing we should note about this great truth of election, so that we understand it clearly before we begin our applications, is that election is unto salvation. Now that is the context of Ephesians 1.4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, he says in verse 3. And then he enumerates the blessings of salvation, the first of which is election. It is unto salvation. Redemption in verse 7, through the blood of Christ. The sealing of the Spirit in verse 14. Now this is consistently taught in Scripture. Jesus said in John 6, All that the Father giveth unto me shall come unto me. Had we time to look at John chapter 10, you would see it there. In Romans chapter 8, Whom God did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, From the beginning God hath chosen you to salvation. Election is unto salvation. How else could we be saved? Lost, dead, and trespasses and sins, how else could we be saved were it not for the movement of God in His sovereignty to redeem us from our awful sins? And then we also should notice that election brings with it the fruit of holiness. Election brings the fruit of holiness. So we read again in verse 4, "...even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world..." that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
He did not choose us because we are holy, because indeed we were contemplated in our sin in need of redemption. We were not holy. But because he would make us to be holy, he chose us. If election depended upon anything within us, we are all unchosen. Indeed, we are dead in trespasses and sins by nature. So the Father elects, the Son dies for those people chosen of the Father, the Spirit of God applies the Father's call and effectually draws us, and when God converts us, it is traceable to His choice, and when He saves us, He changes us. When He brings one of His own to faith in Jesus Christ, which He has purposed and planned from eternity past, He removes our guilt and justifies us, but also he begins the process of changing our hearts and sanctifying our souls. So that he gives to every true believer in Christ the desire to pursue holiness of life. Conversion brings with it a radical newness. That's where the battle with sin actually begins. Now, often evangelicals, I think, typically don't understand this because many evangelicals are still influenced by the old Keswick movement, uh, the idea that there can be a conversion with no radical change, that holiness can be a later experience, a higher plane of Christian living, but the Bible doesn't teach anything like that. It teaches that the God who chooses, Christ having died, the Spirit drawing, we are converted God then begins to change us, radically change us, and gives to us a desire to pursue holiness. And so election is unto holiness of life. Now I think that's a fair summary of the doctrine of election as found in verse 4. That election is God's decree, He's the architect of our salvation. That election is God's choice of individuals. That election is apart from any foreseeing faith or merit. That election is unto salvation. That election brings the fruit of holiness in our lives. Now, I've told you that this is our greatest encouragement in ministry. It's my greatest encouragement as a preacher of God's Word, and it should be our greatest encouragement as a church. The old theologians spoke of election as the heart of the church, and they were right. John Owen said, no election, no gospel, no gospel, no church. And so election should be our great encouragement in ministry. Did you notice the sermon's title this morning? From the wellspring of election. And that comes from Calvin's Institutes, uh, 324.1, if you want the reference. Calvin speaks of the preaching of the gospel that streams forth from the wellspring of election. And I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. When the gospel of Jesus Christ is indiscriminately preached to the lost in this world, it is streaming forth from the wellspring of God's eternal purpose to draw his own unto himself. So why should this doctrine be our greatest encouragement in ministry? Let me give you several reasons. The first reason that this should be our greatest encouragement in ministry is that electing grace, rightly understood, produces in those who minister 
That's us. Humility. And humility, ministering out of a heart of humility, is the indispensable requirement of those who serve others. Serving after the pattern of the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Nothing is so calculated to humble us as this great doctrine of electing grace. If my salvation is all of grace, I owe all to him, and I am humbled in the dust. And so when someone responds, it's unjust, it's unfair, this idea of election, that's the answer of pride, my friend. And all of us answer that way by nature. Paul answers this in Romans 9. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Just go and read Romans 9. It's that very issue that he's addressing. No one merits salvation. God would have been perfectly just to allow us all to go to perdition. And if he saves one, it is grace. Undeserved, unmerited. Grace. God is no man's debtor. When someone says election is unjust, do you want justice? Do you want fair? It's unfair. Do you want fair? God did not give us justice because he determined to pour out his just wrath upon our great substitute for his people on the cross in our place. In our hearts, there is a natural enmity to the sovereignty of God. We hate the sovereignty of God. We are rebellious sinners. We don't want Him to rule over us. And it's humbling to know that He is the potter and that I am the clay. And grace changes our enmity to wonder, experientially works into the heart. A sense of wonder and awe at this doctrine, it humbles us. So that as we sang... Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come? It was the same love that spread the feast that sweetly forced me in, else I had still refused to taste and perished in my sin. I think almost everyone here knows the name of Jonathan Edwards, that great Puritan preacher, theologian. Yale University still publishes his, his, his works. As a matter of fact, you're still adding to and publishing his volumes. Um, expensive volumes are about $100 a volume. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is still read, even by the secularist of our day. Jonathan Edwards says that before he came to know Jesus Christ, he hated the doctrine of absolute sovereignty. But after he came to know Jesus Christ... His heart was changed, and absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God, said Jonathan Edwards. Now, I would suggest to you that true piety, a desire to serve God from a heart of love, holiness, true piety begins right here. And the recognition, Lord, you've saved me, and I was totally undeserving of that salvation, You saved me, and I could not save myself. You redeemed me when I was helpless and hopeless, that at the right time, while I was still without hope and without strength, you sent your Son to die for the ungodly, and I am that ungodly one. 
And if we're going to actually minister to others, we must minister out of the wellspring of election because to do so is to minister out of a sense of utter humility. But then I would say this great teaching of electing grace is the greatest encouragement that we have in ministry because electing grace will make you a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ. Now, I know you hear the opposite. You hear, well, if we believe this doctrine, why preach the gospel? If we hear this, why do any evangelism? If we believe this doctrine, why be engaged in missions? Let me assure you that through church history, the greatest evangelists have been those who believe this truth. Let me assure you that the Lord Jesus Christ, who came into this world to save sinners, believed this truth and teached it taught it, that the Apostle Paul teaches this truth. And the Apostle Paul was a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ. Because as we preach the gospel and bear witness to the name of the Lord, who can thwart God's decree? Who can hinder the ultimate success of his gospel? And so there is Paul, there's George Whitfield, there's Jonathan Edwards. Ladies, there's the Countess of Huntington. Burning evangelists for Jesus Christ. Those preachers constantly preaching, those others not preachers constantly sharing their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For hasn't the Lord appointed a multitude that no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth that he has promised to save? And will he not save them? And so we are burning evangelists for Jesus Christ when we go forth in the truth of this doctrine. Let me also say the knowledge of electing grace is our great encouragement in worship because despite the problems we face, a society that hates God's word, my own struggle with temptation and sin, whatever it may be, despite these things, when I contemplate electing grace, it always leads to a sense of worship and wonder and love. That's what Ephesians 1 is, by the way. It's doxology. Verse 3 begins with praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places. And then he enumerates. I often think that you should take one deep breath and attempt to say these verses, verses 3 through 14, in one breath. I've never been able to do it. But it's that kind of breathless worship. It takes your breath away to contemplate electing grace. The Apostle Paul, as he contemplates these things in the book of Romans, as he comes to his end of thinking about these truths, simply worships and says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has ever given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So, the Apostle Paul could never get over that I obtained mercy. The Apostle Paul could never get over that God saved him, that old blasphemer. He could never get over the fact that God saved him. 
This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And it led him, this idea of sovereignty, electing grace, free mercy, led him to praise God. And so I say to us as a congregation, do not lose this sense of wonder. We'll never be the church God wants us to be if we are not a worshiping people. And you must beware, beware of the death of awe. Beware in your life of the death of awe. But be filled with wonder and love and praise. And then I want to say this. Electing grace should be our greatest encouragement in ministry because of its inseparability to the providence of God. Now let's take verses 4 and 11 and put them together. In verse 4 we read, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In verse 11, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works. That's providence. God's working out His plan. All things, that's the extent of His moral government, according to the counsel, that's His divine decree, of His will, that's the first cause behind all things. Electing grace is our great encouragement because it is being worked out in God's providential plan in history, in time, and in space. God has chosen His people. Providence is God's plan working out in order that His people be saved. Election turns our eyes to the cross where Christ was laden with the sins of His people and to the mysterious work of God's Spirit spreading the gospel through the world, even through our ministry in this place. When I'm discouraged, I take down from my shelves the highest Calvinist I can find. When I'm discouraged in ministry, I want to read these truths because God is in control despite appearances. Despite appearances. And you can have no idea how valuable is the counsel that I bring to you right now. That when you feel discouraged, you need to immerse yourselves in this truth. To see the ministry of this church in the stream of God's providence. And so in weakness, in hard work, in discouragement, when sometimes we feel utterly overwhelmed by where our nation is going or where the world is, If you do not remember that through our ministry, God is working His purpose out, you'll lose your sense of wonder, you'll lose your burning evangelism, you'll lose your sense and recognition of God's presence in it all. Now, you remember how Jonathan Edwards put this. He spoke of that long, long river of God's providence. That large, long river, and there are many tributaries. And you can't see how the various tributaries are feeding into the river, but they are. 
You can only see a stream here, a little trickle here, perhaps a part of the river here. You cannot see the whole of it. You cannot see its origin. You cannot see as it disgorges into the ocean. You can't see it. But there is this long, large river of God's providence. And Edward says, the different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us because of our limited sight, whereby we cannot see the whole at once. A man who sees but one or two streams at a time cannot tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked and different streams seem to run for a a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way as rocks and mountains and the like to hinder their ever uniting and coming to the ocean. But yet, if we trace them, they all unite at last They all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves into one and the same ocean. Not one of all the streams fails. Not one of all the streams fails. So the Word of God is preached this morning from this pulpit, and you and God's providence are here And the stream continues, and it will not fail. We had our VBS last week, and all of those children came and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in the providence of God, and not one of all his streams will fail. Do you get it? This is our great encouragement in ministry. I've been reading slowly here and there the biography of William Romaine, 18th century divine God used in the great revival that he sent to England when things were worse there than they are in our nation today. And Romaine says, my system, he means a system of thought, the thing that motivates him. My system begins with the Lord reigneth. It goes on every step with the Lord reigneth. And whatever opposes it must come down, for he has all power in heaven and in earth. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever and ever. In such times as the present, nothing can quiet the spirit or settle the mind in perfect peace, but that this Lord is my Lord under his care. He has me in mine. Come what may, all is safe in his hands. Not one of his streams will fail. Now, as we bring this to conclusion, let me say to someone here this morning who is lost and undone, you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, and your heart, if you could, you would take the very, the very stones of your stony heart and throw them at this God who says he's sovereign. But let me tell you, he can take that stony heart and break it up by the hammer of his word, and he can replace that stony heart with a heart of flesh. And your great hope, too is that God is sovereign, because otherwise you will not be saved. And let me say this to you. If you think that someday you can just take this doctrine, stand before the judgment seat, and say, here's my excuse I've been looking for, it's no excuse. Oh, you didn't choose me. Did you want Christ? He's never turned anyone away that wanted Christ. My friend, I called you to faith in Christ. 
And I charge you before the all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Venture on Him, venture on Him, let no other trust intrude. You come to faith in Christ, and then you'll come to understand these truths. And so, people of God, this great teaching of electing grace is found in Ephesians 1 will imbue our hearts with passion, will lead our souls to worship, will open our lips to preach, proclaim, or bear witness, and will move our feet to mission in the knowledge that as many as are ordained to eternal life, and there are many, will believe. Electing grace, let me tell you, electing grace has never hindered my heart from proclaiming the gospel freely. Quite the opposite. Electing grace makes me want all to whom I preach know the Christ that I know. And it should you as well. Go. If you're a preacher, preach. Every Christian, bear witness. Go and bear witness from the wellspring of election. And God's people said,